Hi, everybody. It's Peggy here with a little intro to the intro. I know you've been waiting very patiently, and this is the week that we have Tommy Caldwell on the podcast talking about his book, Heavy Brain. I want to give you a little biography about Tommy before we get started today. He is the founder of Hybrid Fitness, as well as the author of the Metflex RX Diet as well as the best-selling book, Heavy Brain, which we'll discuss today. Tommy works as a health and fitness-based behavioral change coach who provides cognitive behavioral therapy practices and strategies to his in-person and online clients. He is super knowledgeable and a fantastic guy, and I am very excited to share this interview with you. So let's get after it. And welcome to The Improvement Project, a podcast about dabbling in self-improvement 30 days at a time. Today's the day for our book report on heavy brain, and we are so excited to share our very first interview with the author, Tommy Caldwell. I'm Dr. Peggy Malone, a healthcare provider and human being trying my best to be better and encouraging others to do the same. I'm in London, Ontario, Canada, and with me is my much more disciplined friend, Jenny. And I get a bit of a week off on this one as you take on this interview, Peg. That's me, Jenny Kaus, a marketing professional from St. Thomas, Ontario. I'm a small town gal and a big believer in the power of habits. I will do my best to whip our guinea peg into shape and hold her accountable to habit changes that she will undertake one month at a time. I'll be playing along too. And as we take on a new habit each month, we hope to inspire you to become more disciplined, more consistent, happier, healthier, more productive, and overall, your own best self. On today's podcast, it's time for our book report, and we have an interview with Tommy Caldwell, author of Heavy Brain. Peg sat down with Tommy to discuss his book, and they had an awesome discussion about this book and his take on habits in general, but especially related to food. The interview has a lot of great content, and it's a lot longer than our usual podcast. So with no further ado, here's the interview. All right, Tommy, welcome to the Improvement Project. Thanks for having me. This is so exciting. You have the perhaps dubious honor of being our first interviewee. So thank you so so much for taking on that role. No, I'm happy to be here. So I wanted to, for our listeners, give them a sense of how we know each other and how we first met. And uh, so I'll start from my perspective. A few years ago, you put out sort of a call on the socials uh, for you wanted an interviewer for a podcast that you were working on at the time. Right. And uh, it was it's, it's not available on the Internet anymore, is it? No, I typically tape things down as I put on new things um, because I find that they can get less relevant. And okay. I want people to focus on like on the thing that I'm focused on. Sure. Uh, maybe that's a mistake. I mean, definitely for iTunes rankings, every time you take down content, you you ruin your rankings, right? Because the more watched, downloaded content you have yeah. building is going to determine your ranking. But I don't care about that ranking as much as I would have five years ago. Okay, great. So I just try and keep things focused. Otherwise, I mean, I've probably done about 400 podcasts. Yeah, you've done a lot. If someone went to a podcast page and that was all on there, they wouldn't really know where to start. So I just try and keep it relevant. Okay. So just for our listeners, I just wanted to mention that it's not there in case they were looking for it. (laughs) But we did this podcast together called The Human Health Experiment, where Tommy basically... You took different uh, diet approaches and various experiments, including drinking red wine every day for a month. <laughs> yeah. And then we talked about it. That was the of, most fun one. That was I'm the most sure fun. I'm sure you can imagine. That's right. <laughs> so we basically, we looked at some metrics. We saw how it affected your health. And then we talked about it. Mm-hmm. So that's how we first originally met. And 
to be fair and honest, some of what you were doing there was an inspiration for me as I started the improvement project, uh, learning about taking an experiment when it comes to something that humans do for their health or for their well-being or for their habits was like a seed for what became of the improvement project. So thank you for that. Yeah, it was like a, a, a constant N equals one experiment of where I would just look at anecdotal evidence and, and results from trying different diets, um, you know, just different applications of things that, that people think about. I'm not really sure what, if I had a, a clear purpose of what that podcast was going to be, just everyone reacts a little bit differently to different things. Mm-hmm. And if you want to maybe try some stuff, I'll show you how it works with me. And then you can determine if it's something worth trying for you, if it's relatable to your goals. But yeah, uh, Peggy here was an excellent hostess. Is that even politically correct to say hostess I anymore? I or is, this, is it that everyone's just a host? Well, whatever the proper term is, uh, <laughs> oh, well, you were wonderful. You. But you. as always, I eventually can't keep up with my own responsibilities. I have these big aspirations of these things I'm going to do, and then I do them, and then I realize that I don't have enough time in the day to do all the things that I want to do. But it was fun while it lasted. Yeah, it And was now cool. you're doing this. Af- and, absolutely. Uh, and we need more good people talking about good things in a, in a non-dogmatic way, so... I'm awesome. happy to have you in the podcast game. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Good. All right. Um, why don't you, for our listeners who don't know you, tell them a little bit about who you are, what do you do, and um, sort of what's your latest project? Sure. I'll give, uh, I'll give my extended elevator pitch. So I originally started out once my own uh, athletic career, if you want to call it that, was over. Uh, I originally started training other athletes just because for me... Talent was never really my thing in athletics. Hard work, changing my body, you know, maximizing my performance was where I thrived and what allowed me to play uh, various sports at the levels that I did. So once I was done and thinking about, well, what am I going to do with my life now? That's something that I just naturally gravitated towards. Like I always trained uh, uh, teams and kids that were younger than me while I was uh, competing as an athlete. So it's something that I just sort of continued doing, but started to do more of. Got to the point where I opened up my own training facility in uh, 2008, 2009. It was called Hybrid Training at the time. And that was, you know, 90% athletes and maybe a handful of just everyday people who, you know, I knew personally or had come across and, and that made up the population of my gym. And, and that was fun and rewarding and working with high level athletes was great for a lot of reasons. But I think just as I started to mature and the novelty of being a guy that people that you might see on TV go to for those sorts of things, once that novelty started to wear off, I realized all of these people that I am helping or serving right now, they don't really need me when it comes to being in shape, being healthy, taking care of themselves. You know, number one, if you're you're a high-level athlete, you gravitate towards exercise, fitness, performance, all of those things already where most people that might not come so natural to them. Um, If you're at the highest level, you have a certain amount of financial security and lifestyle that takes away a lot of the serious emotional issues that people face day to day that drive a lot of factors that lead to to a lack of health and disease, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. And basically it's, you know, it, it was fun and sure I'm helping them 
shave half a second if I'm lucky off their 40 meter sprint, make them a little bit faster, prevent a little bit of injury, do those things, but I'm not really making a meaningful impact in the overall life of that person. So I had to ask myself, well, who do I really want to help here? And at this point, I understand this is something that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like I loved it. I loved everything about it, loved everything about the world of health and fitness. It's one of the first things where in my own life, I saw that when you do A and do or stop doing B, you get C. Like it's one of the few places in my life at that time where I saw if I do certain things and stop doing other certain things, I can get a result, right? I can make something happen in a very, very uh, clear and understandable way. And I wanted to apply that to other people who could use it a little bit more. So long-winded way of saying I moved into working with just everyday people because I knew that they were the people who were really suffering and where maybe I could make a greater impact. And, you know, thinking, I think legacy is such a silly word, but um, something that people understand. When I think about my professional legacy, do I want it to be, I have this roster of athletes who I've worked with or like, I'm sitting down having conversations with people who are in tears because they're, they can't believe what they've accomplished. So I don't think I need to tell you which one is more satisfying as awesome. far as who, who you see yourself being. So now I, uh, I own Hybrid Fitness, founder of Hybrid Fitness. I have a few very good partners in that business uh, as well. Uh, but that's where most of my day-to-day goes. And I'm primarily a behavioral change coach, meaning... I teach people the basics of diet and exercise, including their lifestyle, uh, improving sleep quality, managing stress, things like that. But more importantly, I put people in a position to actually apply the things they know they need to do. So people need to, people need to be able to make the choices they already know they need to make every single day, and they know they need to stop making other negative choices that they know they need to stop making every single day. And the reason why most people fail in their diet and exercise efforts is not because they don't have enough information, they don't know what exercises to do, they just can't do the things they already know they need to do consistently, and they can't stop doing the things that they they need to stop doing consistently. So I see my role now as the person who gives them a diet and exercise structure because people want to know, people want to have confidence in what they're putting in their body and what they're doing, especially when it comes to safety and efficacy. But those are the simple, non-complex things that everyone obsesses over when the real work has to be done. And why can't you just do the things you already know you should do and stop doing the things you know you should stop doing? And exactly. as, as a behavioral change coach and as, uh, you know, I, I further my in education in places like cognitive behavioral therapy, that's the entire purpose of doing that is I with working, I work with thousands of people and it became very clear to me that people don't need more information They need to understand that there's something that's driving them to make poor choices and preventing them from making good choices. And that is the key to success in the average individual. So that's where my time goes these days. Uh, That's why I wrote the book. That's why I do the podcast. Uh, Basically, everything that I do these days is about teaching people how to make those paradigm shifts in their own thinking. Amazing. And that fits really well into what we're trying to do with the Improvement Project. So we're very excited to hear more, especially about this book. So on the Improvement Project, every month we have a new theme. And this month's theme is related to habits surrounding food and drink. And each month we have a book that we read. 
and we do our book report around week three, <laughs> which will be this interview with you. So our book report this month is on your book, which is Heavy Brain and How Your Mind Changes Your Waistline. Amazing, amazing work. Um, love this book. And I hope our, our listeners do too. We gave them the the homework at the beginning of the month to go ahead and get a copy of the book and get reading. And then, so hopefully they'll be listening along as we chat about it today. Great. Give us a synopsis of why this book, this subject matter in this way for you at this point in your career is important. Why do you, what do you see in your gym with your clients that makes this important right now? Gotcha. And I think it's also important to mention this originates from what I see in myself too, right? It's not just what I see in clients and people around me. I don't think you can look outside of yourself and get great answers to problems. I think people who have problems that they recognize in themselves or you see problems in other people and you recognize those problems in yourself as well, I think you get to a much better solution when you recognize that you have the same issues as other people, only to varying degrees, maybe with different consequences. But everyone's suffering in the same way from the same types of problems and the solution is basically the same. So. I did, there's, there's no question that I see these issues in pretty much everyone I work with, everyone who's at least being honest with themselves, but I see them in myself as well. Um, and we can get into that a little bit later if you want. But when it comes to the book, it's that diet and exercise are not the answer. They're the stimulus for the change, meaning what you put into your body and what you do with your body is going to have the greatest effect on the outcome of your body as far as how it looks, how it operates, uh, disease prevention, things like that. But what leads you to be able, being able to apply those ideal principles of, of diet and exercise? And the answer is that it's much more complex than people might think. People think it's just you make a choice, right? You have willpower, you have discipline, whatever it might be. You just, you make the choice that you're going to start eating better and exercising, but it's not quite that simple. So in the book, I talk about the various drivers that we don't consider that make it impossible to succeed in our diet and exercise efforts. One of those being uh, the, the primal conflict, which is our evolutionary drive to seek out high energy foods, high sugar, high fat foods, uh, be lazy whenever we have the opportunity to be lazy um, as a modern human being. Technical distraction, technological distract, uh, distraction rather, plays a role in that, as well as being very, very efficient fat stores. So these are all mechanisms that we developed during times of scarcity, which the majority of human evolution happened through times of scarcity. And the reason why human beings were, were able to survive and thrive and be what we are today is because we were constantly searching, inspired to search out food, eat as much of it when we found it, any excess we would store very effectively as fat, and when we didn't have to run from danger or search out food, we just lied around, right? Put energy in, conserve the energy conserve that's energy. there, store the energy in excess, and if a month goes by and you can't find food, the fatter individual survives. Right, So this is the first thing that's weighing against human beings. We have an innate drive to overeat and we are very effective fat stores. And we're also, we also tend towards laziness because those are survival mechanisms. And then number two, the more complex part is that now as modern human beings, we have all this stress and trauma, negative thoughts, emotions, feelings that we have every single day, whether it's 
financially driven, relationship driven, professionally driven, uh, even driven by people who are unsure about what their purpose in life is, uh, lacking direction, all these sorts of pains, discomforts that give us a certain negative emotion that we have trouble dealing with. Food is the most readily available, cheapest, effective drug form of self-medication we have for those problems. So when you're upset, you can eat away those problems for a little bit. When you're bored, eating becomes a pastime. When you're stressed out, when you're anxious, when you're worried about you know what is or isn't in your bank account, or maybe you're having some trouble at work, or you're having trouble with your significant other, when you're eating, you're not thinking, you're not worrying, right? So this is problem number two. You're already evolutionarily driven to overeat and underexercise, if we want to make it really, really simple. And now as a modern human being, you're further pushed into those evolutionary drives that are now unhealthy. Uh, Daniel Lieberman calls this the evolutionary mismatch. And if you want to learn more about this, uh, the book, The Story of the Human Body is incredible. This is, and that is, uh, just a side note, that is the book that I read, I read the year it came out, I think it was eight years ago now. That is the book that really kickstarted my thinking of, this is what's really going on with people. I remember when we first were doing the podcast a few years ago, you were big on that book then. You yeah. mentioned it to me even then. So obviously it's something that's been a big part of your thinking for yeah. a while. I determine the value of a book based off of the amount of times that I've read it. Yeah. Like I can read a book and say it was amazing. If I haven't got back and read it a second time, it wasn't that great of a book. It clearly okay. didn't make that much of an impact. I've read that book about five times cool. since then. Uh, probably more than any other book that I've read. Uh, so anyways, those are the two... The two main drivers that we don't really consider, and those are the big ones. And then there's more minor stuff. Like now we have an environment, a social environment, a commercial environment where we have we have foods that are highly manufactured and processed in order to manipulate and take advantage of those evolutionary drives for sugar, for fat, because it's high energy. Those are the foods where in the wild, during times of scarcity, if you found a pot of honey... Your entire tribe could survive for a long time on that amount of energy, and it gave them the energy to go seek out more food, right? So we have foods that are actually constructed and manufactured to take advantage of those certain mechanisms. Fool your brain into thinking it's tasty. Yeah, fast food on every corner. I mean, even in your own house, there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of calories that are accessible to you at any time. So now we have this insanely high drive for consumption that serves us during scarcity, but there's no scarcity anymore. So this is why it's so easy to overeat, why it's so easy to eat yourself into certain problems, and a big reason why we tend to fall into eating the foods that we eat that are of more consequence, because the foods that are of more consequence are also coincidentally the foods that we evolutionarily gravitate toward. And then if you look at you know your, your immediate environment or your familial environment, like the way that you're raised, Food as a reward, food as a punishment. You know, just there's there's so many complex issues that end up becoming barriers to your success in the future. And every time we say, well, you just need to eat these foods and do these exercises, stop eating this, stop doing that. Everyone knows that stuff. If you're being honest with yourself, you know what you're doing wrong and you know what quote unquote doing things right is. You just can't apply it day to day because you're using food inappropriately because exercise is the difficult thing to do. And I guess to summarize all of this uh, in a more articulate way, the healthy choice 
is always the difficult choice for a modern human being. The healthy choice is always going to be the hard choice to make and health is abnormal. And that is what we're facing right now. We're basically in a default of unhealthy right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you just, you know, look around being healthy is, is, is an abnormal state. And the reason why is because the healthy choice is always going to be the most difficult choice for a human being to make. You're always swimming against the current. And especially when you don't understand and face those issues and uncover them and dig them up in your own life, you can't succeed. It's impossible. Okay. Well, I guess that's the bad news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in your book, uh, in chapter eight, you talk about, um, self-analysis and starting to train your brain to do something different, to make different choices. Um, and also in one of your podcasts for heavy brain, when you're talking about the primal conflict, you get into some of this as well in our, the improvement project, a challenge for this month, what we've challenged ourselves and our listeners to do is monitor what they are, use the strategy of monitoring to change the habit, or at least to get some data, some data. So we started with just for the first couple of weeks, let's use an app on our phone and just check and see what we're doing. So we're going to kind of like through what you're going to talk about next, take that monitoring that we're just doing for food and drink, and then bring it up to the next level by monitoring. What is it that we're actually, what is actually motivating us? What are we thinking about? Why are we doing things? So I know that you have some questions that people can use to ask themselves in the present when they're doing something, after they've done something, and also thinking about what, what can I do to do better in the future. So can you speak to some of that? Sure. And maybe I'll start with, with a simpler uh, form of this and, and break it down a little bit. So it's easy for us to, or maybe I'll take another step back. So we always think about what we eat in the aftermath, Right. Sure. I when, shouldn't have had that giant bag of jelly beans. When, when the bag of chips is gone and then we go to the second bag of chips, even though we're full and we eat that whole thing and the only thing that stops us from eating is literally we're going to split and the pain becomes, becomes worse than the stimulation. That's when we stop eating. Once that's done, then we think about the food. Why did I eat that? You know, why did I do this to myself? Tomorrow's going to be different. We have all these very powerful reflections uh, that usually are unhelpful because they're they're negative most of the time and they we beat ourselves up over it. Um, but we have all of these powerful reflections once we're done. What we don't do is think actively when we're about to, when we just start or when we're in the middle of it. Right. And that sort of mindless consumption where we don't think before we eat, while we're eating through the duration, we only start to think about our choices afterwards. That is the beginning of the problem. Right. And what I tell people is it's not important that changing your thinking about food immediately does anything about it. Meaning if I start getting you thinking about why you're eating the food you eat, why you're choosing the food you're choosing, if I get you to think about that before you actually consume, it's not important to me that that stops you from eating the bag of chips. All that matters to me is that you get in the routine of actively thinking about the choices you're making, right? And that's where it starts. Before, if if you start eating something like chips and you're sitting on the couch, it usually comes with some sort of distraction that allows it to be even more mindless. Whether it's TVs on in the background, you're staring at your laptop, maybe you're watching a YouTube video, you're on your smartphone going through social networks, there's usually an accompanying uh, distraction that allows you to eat mindlessly. But if you can stop at any point, whether it's before or during and say, why am I eating this right now? 
not in a judgmental way, just asking the question, why am I eating this right now? Am I hungry? Right? The answer is almost always no, I'm not hungry. Okay, well then why am I eating? And more importantly, what am I getting out of this? Because if you're taking part in an unhealthy behavior that's going to make you feel guilty and shameful afterwards, there's a reason why you're doing it. You're, there's, there's, there's some price you're willing to pay for that sorrow once it's done. And it's important to find out what that is. Maybe you're eating because it's, you're not thinking about a problem you're having at work. Maybe, you, maybe you're worried about your health. Maybe you got back a unfavorable blood test that's going to require further testing and you're having anxiety about that. But when you're eating, you're not suffering from that anxiety. Maybe you're particularly sad that day. Maybe it was just a tough, overwhelming day and you just can't deal with your own thoughts. And when you're eating, you're not thinking about that. Again, it doesn't matter that it changes it. It matters that you begin to identify when I eat in a consequential way, when I'm not hungry and I pick the worst foods and even though I feel awful about myself afterwards, I continue to do this anyways, what is the driving factor? And figuring out what that or what those things are is the most important piece of change. Uh, I can't remember who said the quote, but understanding the problem is, is half the solution, right? And that goes for this. Most of the time, we don't understand what the problem actually is, or we have this sense that the actual problem is so complex and so painful that it's easier for us to look outside of the actual problem for other little problems. And this is when it's like, oh, I, I need to calculate my calories and macronutrients. Or, you know, I, I'm, I teach people how to do hand measurements for food just in a very temporary period of time, just so you can see more objectively what you're putting in your body. And then people ask questions like, well, what if, you know, if I use my palm, people who aren't watching a video right now won't be able to see this, but I'm using my palm to reference uh, a portion of something like protein. And I'll say, you know, you take your protein, whatever that is, you put it on the plate. If it's roughly the size of your palm, that's what your protein serving should be. And then someone will be like, well, what about the, the width of your hand? What if it's, you know, an extra thick steak? What? And I just say, this is not your issue. What right? if you have gigantic hands? <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the pizza and three bottles of wine you drink over the weekend in an out of control binge, that's the problem right? It's not a matter of a slightly inaccurate protein measurement for your dinner. Um, so understanding what the actual issue is and then why you can't kick that issue. And it starts with, I would just call it active thinking. When you're eating, don't allow yourself to do it suppressively. Think, right? Be active. And another way that you can serve this is, and this is a very difficult one for people to do, but even if you can just do it for a week, you don't eat any food Snacks in particular away from the table. So if you're at home and you want to have a bag of chips, go for it. Sit at the table and eat it without wow. the TV in the background. And you have to engage with what is happening there. And it helps you get closer to understanding what the problem is. But most of us, we are susceptible to something. We're susceptible to emotions, thoughts, and feelings. So some of us are susceptible to stress, anxiety. Some of us are susceptible to sadness, depression. Some of us are susceptible to anger and frustration. Some of us are susceptible to self-loathing and disgust, these sorts of feelings. And these are usually, and this is when I do work with, uh, with someone like Gabor Mate and have him as a mentor, 
and using that sort of addictions model, we know that we're sensitive to certain emotions, thoughts, and feelings because of adverse life events that usually happen when we were younger. But, you know, that's more complex. We don't need to get into that right now. But every adult human being is susceptible to some sort of negative emotion, thoughts, and feelings. And those are usually the things that drive us to self-medicate with food, laziness, lethargy, technical, uh, technological distraction, uh, distraction, and all these sorts of things that I've, as a modern human being we suffer from. But understanding the problem is the most important thing, and you can only do that by actively thinking when you eat food and understanding what's the positive thing you're getting from it. Because you're getting something positive from it, even though in the long run it's negative. In that moment, you're getting something out of that eventually consequential action. So what is that? Knowing that, understanding that, getting to the bottom of it, at least allows you to begin solving that problem. Okay, cool. So I think for me, one of the things that I always like to know about is have people been successful with this as their model? And you've worked with a ton of people using this along with diet and exercise versus the way that the entire fitness industry, health and fitness industry, which just focuses on diet and exercise. So adding this other piece, have you seen some good success? Yes. Uh, And while I don't have any hard data in front of me, I would say before applying this sort of model, one in 15, one in 20 people that I'd work with would succeed in the long term. I mean, anyone can succeed for a month or three months and make completely unreasonable sacrifices to change their body. And then just, you know, go back you're to always going to go back to something that's uh, more routine habit and more quote unquote sustainable. Um, so those people typically don't keep those results, but the success rate was very low. And at that time when I was younger, when, uh, the combination of, of not being educated in this area as well as not being mature enough to take more personal responsibility. It was, if I told you what to do and you didn't do it and you didn't get the result, you just didn't care. You didn't care. You weren't disciplined enough. It's your problem. Whereas now clearly I understand that that's not the case. And that's a, a pretty irresponsible to a, a irresponsible way to approach that, that client coach relationship. But now I would say if Someone is in a position where they're ready to change. They're ready to be honest with themselves. They're ready to to get away from the shame and negative self-thinking that they've always gone through. They're open to, to being honest with their worst habits and behaviors almost 100% of the time people will effectively change in the long run. And, awesome. And now I've been able to track people up to two years in this process with con- to not just maintaining success, but continuing to succeed. But on the other side of that, if someone's, if someone's not ready, if they're not willing to be honest, if they're in a position where they're just going to keep telling themselves that these things are the problem over here because it's, it's, easy, it's easier and less painful to say, oh, I just don't know what foods to eat sure. rather than, you know, I drink myself into a coma on the weekends and I binge eat at night and all these other things that they know they do, but it's too painful for them to admit that. If they're there, there's nothing I can do to help them. I can hope that I can deliver enough content and communication that over time they'll become ready and then they'll know what they need to do once they're ready. But if you you can't be honest, if you can't look yourself in the mirror and say, I've got problems and these are what they are, today's the day that they're going to change and it doesn't matter that it's painful and it doesn't matter that I'm going to suffer in these self-reflections and digging these things up and being honest with myself like you are doing this to yourself. If you can get there, you will absolutely 100% change your life. But getting there is part of the 
trick because it's painful, right? It's painful to look yourself in the face. It's very, uh, most of us have very sensitive egos and that is a hard thing on the ego to look yourself in the mirror and say, you take these actions every day, you do this to yourself. Um, and I don't mean to say that as in it's your fault, right? It's not your, chances are it's not your fault that you're in the state of health you're in, but it's 100% your responsibility to do something about it as an adult. But you have to be there in order to change. So if you're there, change is inevitable. If you're not there, you got to find a way to get there. Okay. So if some of our listeners are at that space where they're ready to change, what would you recommend their first steps should be? So if you look at a, a preparedness or readiness for change model, most people, I assume most of your listeners, most people who come into the gym for the first time, um, you know, most people that I interact on a day-to-day, uh, interact with on a day-to-day basis, they're at the stage, they're basically in mid-level readiness, meaning you're prepared. <laughs> There's a uh, fighter jet or helicopter <laughs> flying over the, uh, the studio right now. Um, but you're usually ready to, to dip your toes in, try some new stuff, aim to, you know, aim to commit to a few new habits, routines, whatever they might be, see what happens. If good things happen, chances are you'll try a little bit more. That person needs excessive positive reinforcement. And we carry this incredibly large and powerful negativity bias. Meaning, let's say you try and start taking control of your diet. And that just means you're going to buy more good whole foods. You're going to try and get rid of some processed foods. You're going to try and stop overeating. Uh, You're not even going to try and cut out late night snacking, but you're going to try and snack on healthier, less consequential foods. These are just some basic changes that you're going to make. Let's say you're used to making 100 good food decisions per week and 100 bad food decisions per week. That's your standard before you decide you're going to start making changes. So now you're making 150 good choices per week and 50 bad choices per week. Or even better, you're making 180 good choices per week and 20 bad choices per week. You will dwell on those 20 bad choices, even though you've exponentially improved the things you do for yourself every day from a health perspective, you will always give more weight to those negative choices, which is where people go wrong because, you know, Monday, let's say Monday to Saturday, you do really well. You go to the gym three times per week. You walk three times per week. You're eating good food. You're preparing your meals. You're curbing some snacking. Sunday comes around, there's a social event, you drink more than you should, you eat more than you should, you indulge in desserts. What's the aftermath of that? You feel like everything's thrown out the window. This is what I do because this is the person I am. This is why I'm fat. This is why I'm unhealthy. This is why I hate looking at myself in the mirror because this is me. And then Monday comes around and it's so much easier to go back to your old ways and your old expectations because if you expect yourself to be a failure, failing is not as painful as if you expect yourself to succeed, right? The cruel joke is that if you constantly expect yourself to succeed and you don't let those little steps backwards affect you and if you don't let, if you don't give so much power to those handful of poor choices that you make, success is inevitable. But people's egos are so fragile, and I don't mean that in, you know, I don't mean ego in the negative, the common negative sense it's used. It's just how you see yourself, 
right? How you think and feel about yourself. We're so sensitive to that. We're so sensitive to failure. This is why we constantly self-sabotage. And this is why we have such a negativity bias. So circling back around, celebrating every good thing you do for yourself is so important. And giving the good things you do for yourself at least equal value to the bad things that you do to yourself, right? And trying to create that balance of, it's not like I need to pretend eating a salad is a thousand times better than when I eat a pizza or is a thousand times better than eating a pizza is bad, but at least give them equal value, right? If you're going to get down on yourself because you eat seven slices of pizza, if you go through a day and you eat three well-planned meals and you get through the end of the day, you go to sleep and you feel good about yourself, that should be a huge win. So at that stage of readiness, being able to put yourself in a position to constantly positively reinforce the things you do well, to celebrate the things you do well, to feel good about yourself. And this is sort of when I get into being action-centric, not result-centric. Because typically we are driven by what the scale says, the way our clothes fit, how we look in the mirror, all these sorts of things. And it's not that vanity isn't important. It's a part of being a human being. So measurement of those goals is never going to be something that people aren't going to care about. But you need to find value in just the action of taking care of yourself and let the results come. Meaning every time you eat a good meal made from whole foods that you cooked yourself when maybe you're not a great cook, right? When you do that sort of thing, you need to be able to say, this is the thing that I need to celebrate. This is the thing that I should feel good about. If at the end of the day, you can go to sleep and say, I did really good today. That needs to be the thing you're striving for, not what the scale says. Because if you're results centric, the results are not going to come or you'll do a bunch of unsustainable, unmanageable, extreme things just to see that scale change. On the other hand, if you can say to yourself, I'm just going to start eating better. I'm going to start exercising more. I'm going to start trying to sleep better and I'm going to try and manage my stress or my overwhelming emotions better. If I'm ticking those boxes more often than not, I'm satisfied. I feel good about myself. I'm doing the thing that I've set out to do. If that is your attitude, your results will come. They will come and when you get them, you'll also see that they were far less important to your well-being, your happiness, than you thought they once were. And that's really what everyone's after, right? When someone says, I want to lose weight, well, why? Or anything that you want to change, why? 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 It always comes down to, because I want to be happy. I want to feel good about myself. I don't want to look in the mirror and feel sad every day, right? So if that's what you're after, you better make sure that whatever your superficial goal is, once you get there, it's going to make you happy because chances are it's not. Like if you're, let's say you're 200 pounds right now, you think you'd be happy at 150. If I snap my fingers and you were 150 pounds tomorrow, you'd be ecstatic for an hour. The next day you just go back to being sad about something else. And I mean, that's a whole different can of worms, but you need to change what your value system is. And if you're putting good food in your body, if you're going to the gym when you weren't before, if you're going for a walk when you'd normally be sitting on the couch watching TV, those are the powerful things that you should reward yourself for. So that's a very uh, a long answer to the question. You know, your listeners, meeting them where they're at, what do they need? You need to change the way that you celebrate the little things you do for yourself because you value yourself rather than relying on superficial measurements 
for your personal health progress. Awesome. Amazing stuff. And the coolest piece about this book is when I first started reading it, I thought maybe when I would get through some of the stuff that was the emotional, psychological stuff we've just been discussing, and then now you'd show me the diet and the exercise. But really, (laughs) you get to the end of this book, and that's the story. Yeah. And originally, diet and exercise was put in there. And the... For anyone who bought the book in the first few weeks, I apologize. And every negative review I have on Amazon is about this. So when I originally wrote the book, uh, I had a 10th chapter in there, which was diet and exercise. And in the, uh, in the chapter summaries or previews in the beginning of the book, I even wrote in there, I wouldn't do something as silly as give you all of this psychological advice without some diet and exercise structure. Okay. And then the diet and exercise structure came. But then with Metflex RX, we put all of my dietary resources online for free. So I was like, do I really want to make this book longer for something that people can just go online and look at for free? So I removed the chapter but I forgot to remove the summary. Oh, no. So everyone got this book saying, I wouldn't do something so silly <laughs> as to go through all this. And then people get to chapter 10 and it's not there. Oh, wow. So I'm on Amazon replying to everyone like, I'm so sorry. You can find it here. So I've been the first book that I've ever written. Uh, there is a lot of learning process in there uh, and doing it without a uh, doing it without a copy editor. I was like, I can do this myself. Okay. Uh, Outsource the things that I needed, outsource uh, publishing and things like that. But I was like, I can edit my own book. And then it's things like, those are reasons why you need professionals. And I'm sure it didn't affect the world or my world as much as I like to think. But of course, I was horrified when I get my copies of the book and I'm looking at it. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I forgot to take that out. So of course, this has all been resolved since then, but... That's just a little anecdote. All right. Well, you mentioned Metflex RX. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what that is and where people can find more about it? Sure. Yeah. Metflex RX is basically the diet that I that I try and promote to people. Uh, which number one, it's flexible in its philosophy. So one of the core tenets of the program is you can't. Nobody should be fit into a certain dietary box. The reason why all diets become popular is because there's a certain segment uh, segment of the population who will thrive in a certain diet. So 5 to 10% of the population will thrive in paleo, some in high carb, some in low carb, some in vegan, vegetarian, right? And keto is a big one right now. Yeah, and yeah. keto is a big one. And when you have that 5 to 10% who see results, they'll talk about it like they're 100% of the population, right? right? And you hear about all this success, but Based on, you know, something as in-depth as your ancestry, the part of the world that your lineage come from, to something as superficial as how did you grow up as a kid? What foods were you exposed to? What foods did you overeat or undereat? Like, what was your life like, your nutritional life like as a kid? All these things affect, as an adult, how you metabolize food, where your intolerances lie, foods that you're going to thrive on. Even now, doing genetics with companies like 23andMe, you can see how There are genes that are going to determine, you know, some people like a ketogenic diet, they will thrive with an incredibly high saturated fat content. Then there's people who have an APOE4 gene, uh, not to get technical, this will be the only thing I say, people who have an APOE4 gene who are going to have significant rises in blood sugar from saturated fat intake. So they will plummet on a ketogenic diet. So the first tenet of Metflex RX is 
Here are some basic principles to follow, but this is also how you need to look at this diet to adjust it to make it work for you. You have to be able to justify the things you put into your body as far as how they're going to work for you, whether it's you know, from food intolerances to your lifestyle to your enjoyment of certain foods. No one's going to stick to a diet that isn't sustainable and enjoyable. So that's part one. And then part two, the more technical Metflex is metabolic flexibility, meaning carbohydrates and fats are both uh, demonized in some dietary realms, right? Fat is bad. Carbohydrates are bad. But they're both just energy nutrients, right? Fat is a little bit more essential and has a little bit more of a role in our health than something like carbohydrates. Carbohydrates is more like a supplement. It's not essential. It can be helpful. But they're both energy nutrients. And when you're doing certain activities, fat is probably a better fuel for you. When you're doing other activities, carbohydrates are probably a better fuel for you. And the healthiest people are the people who are able to use both fats and carbohydrates in varying quantities interchangeably as needed. So if you're just sitting around all day long, maybe you have a desk job, you're stressed out, you go home, you know you're going to be lying on the couch, you're not doing to the, going to the gym, you're not doing anything, that person should be protein and fat dominant, right? Because you don't really have a use for carbohydrates aside from pushing up your blood sugar, pushing up your insulin, increasing fat storage, right? On the other spectrum, if you're someone who's working out hard, you're a performance athlete, you're doing the types of exercise that make your muscles burn, your lungs burn, higher intensity exercise, whether that's lifting or hit cardio or something like that, then you'll see as intensity rises in exercise, our body shifts to using carbohydrates and glucose more for energy. So under those circumstances, carbohydrates have a place where they can be quite helpful. So that's the other portion of the diet is teaching people how to eat a certain way depending on what you're doing that day. And your activity, your, your, your shift between fat and carbohydrate intake changes based on what you're doing day to day. So those are the basics of the diet, of the, of the diet, making yourself flexible physiologically and making yourself flexible philosophically. So you're not getting caught up in dogmatic diet tribalism. And you see this where people get upset when you're not eating the way that they eat. It's true. Right? It it's would, true. And that's, again, We've talk, we talked about that a lot on the last podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, not a world that I prefer to live in. Anyone, someone is personally attached to their diet where it's part of their self image. I have no time for them. Okay. You know, like your diet should not be that personal. You should not care what other people eat. I guess you could make the argument if you're a vegan, that's more of an ethical choice and you see a problem with the industrialization of meat. And so you have some sort of malice towards that group of people who support it. That I understand. But even then, that's usually backed up by pseudoscience and ridiculousness about the health or lack of health or diseases that are driven by animal meat consumption, which again is a completely different conversation. But when someone says, I don't eat meat because I don't want to support a cruel industry, totally understand that. that. Me too. Respect it 100%. When someone says, if you eat meat, you're going to get cancer from that meat. I think you're a little bit out of place and out of touch and you might want to go back and learn a little bit about biochemistry and nutrition if that's what you actually believe. You're trying to fear monger people into eating the way that you eat. It's ridiculous. I love it when you get on this rant. Let's um, segue away from it. I do love it. I do love it. Um, So where's the link that people can find out more about that MetflexRx? MetflexRx.com. The best place to find it is just on Facebook. There's a page there. 
The pinned post on the MetFlexRx Facebook page is the link to the diet. Perfect. And you get it for free. Everyone can have it. Okay. So if you're interested in anything Tommy has said about that, please go there. And all of the links and resources we've talked about during this conversation, you'll find at drpeggymalone.com forward slash podcast in the show notes. Um, before we go, I do have one more question. A lot of our... Uh, listeners have small children and I know that you have small children. Yes. So it must be an interesting place as somebody with all this knowledge about health and fitness and food habits to then be encouraging a small person to start with their habits about food. Right. So do you have any advice for parents with small children when it comes to food and food habits? Yes. And you know, I have a, a two and a half year old and a seven month old. So Time will tell what my strategies do or don't do for my children. And I find that parents have very uh, differing ideas about how you should approach nutrition with your kids. And childhood nutrition experts have varying ideas of how this should go. But for my own personal philosophy, I want to, while I have my children's diet in full control, I want to have them eat as well as possible. There's people who, who say, well, if you restrict your kid from these foods, from sugar and candy, then when they have access to it, they're going to go crazy. I don't believe that at all. I think if you, I think the earlier you give your kids those highly palatable foods that we are driven to eat as adults, the more you expose them to that at a young age, the more you dull and disassociate their satisfaction from whole foods. So I don't put dressing on my kids' foods. I don't put sauces on my kids' foods. I don't let them eat candy. I don't let them eat ice cream. I mean, I can't always keep them away from that stuff when they're with grandma and grandpa, when they're with their mother, (laughs) when they're with people who connect their child's or grandchild's joy of food with that relationship, right? When someone gives gives their grandchild or their child ice cream, and of course their kid is like, oh my God, what is this? They see that as that child loves me more because that happened, which I of course believe is completely untrue. Um, And (laughs) I think that you change, you, you dramatically change your child's taste preference. And if you think about it, these are foods that your child is going to be driven to consume already for reasons that we talked about earlier in the podcast. And now at a very young age, you're exposing them to the most unnatural concentrated amounts of these foods. So I would argue that the more you do that and the younger of the age you do that, you're not setting them up to self-regulate. You're setting them up to find less satisfaction in real whole foods and more of a preference for those manufactured processed foods, especially high sugar high fat foods. And I don't mean high fat as in like fat is bad. Um, I eat probably 50 to 60% of my calories from fat every single day. I mean the type of manufactured processed fats that you're going to find in other heavy sugar laden foods where you have that hyper palatabilism of fat and, uh, and sugar combined. So that's the first thing. I think while your kids are diets are in your control, you do the best you can not just to evolutionarily try and limit that those unhelpful taste preferences, but also along the way, trying to teach them some food values. So when they're at the birthday party and you're not there and they're going to make their own choices, they maybe have a little bit more of something to think about, right? And maybe you can instill some food values in your kids where maybe they don't think pop is the greatest thing in the world. Maybe it's even a little bit gross to them. And I don't mean that like psychologically tricking your kids where 
they drink a sip of pop and you pinch them really hard so they associate pain with pop. I don't mean that, but just teaching them, you know, this is how we eat here and this is why we eat this way. And this is why more often than not, we eat the foods we eat. And that's not to say that you can't have these other foods, but kids should understand there's a consequence that comes with those foods. And I find it very upsetting and unnerving that adults who are 60, 70, 80 pounds overweight struggling with their health and worried about succumbing to lifestyle-based diseases would have the nerve to say, you should let kids eat these foods. Like, what has that done for you? Look at the state of health that you're in and look at your health concerns. But then you say kids should be exposed to these foods. So while they're in your control, I would say do the best you can. Have them eat whole foods as often as possible. Have them experience those foods and have them enjoy those foods and understand that every time you give them hyper palatable foods, you dull them from the enjoyment of a whole food. So that's what I would say and give them as much food as, as possible, as much variety as possible. If they don't want to eat certain foods, don't have them eat it. If they're not, if, if they're done at the dinner table, let them leave. Like don't be controlling about it. Just put the stuff out there that you value. See what your child does with it. Let them self-moderate. And I think that's incredibly important because we spend so much time saying, no, you need to eat more of this. You need to eat more of that. No, you're not done yet. You can't leave the table until you eat that. I think when you do that, you say to your kids, you don't understand yourself. Oh, you think you're full? No, you're not full. You don't know that you're full. I know that you're full because I'm your parent. So you eat more of that. And I think you, you're disconnecting your kid from their own, their own personal intuition with food And let's be honest, kids are not going to starve themselves. It's not going to happen, so stop being so anal about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I really value your your opinion on this, just because I think it's one of those things that probably is emotional and contentious for a lot of people. And, you know, possibly you might get some bad feedback from people by exposing them to that opinion. But I I think there's a lot of value in what you've said. Yeah, and here's a few things. If I just said that and that hurt your feelings, that should tell you something about yourself. If you're bothered by what I just said, you know that's a problem and that you do it. And you're trying to justify those actions. I'll leave it on this anecdote because this is fitting right now. Again, this is an N equals one. This is completely anecdotal. But it was Thanksgiving weekend. We had my in-laws in town. We had a 40th anniversary dinner for my in-laws as well. Thanksgiving dinner with my in-laws. And then Thanksgiving dinner on Monday with my family which of course, everyone wants him to eat this cake at the anniversary. They want him to eat this pie. My son bit his cousin (laughs) on Sunday and bit his little sister the next day. Oh my gosh. And bit his little sister who's seven months old to the point of there's a welt on her arm. Oh no. And this could be completely unrelated, but I find it very coincidental that he's exposed to all these high sugar, hyper palatable foods. And now he's going around biting his family members. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's, he's trying to see what they taste like. <laughs> exactly. And I said, I said, did you bite your cousin? And he looks at me right in the eyes and he goes, yes. And this is a two and a half year old. And I said, why did you bite your cousin? And he said, because he was on the horsey and I wanted to show him how the horsey bites. And I said, you can't do that. No one will want to play with you if you bite them. And he said, okay, he'll come back tomorrow and I won't bite him. Oh my gosh, I love this. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) pie and cake might lead to biting. 
Okay, I like this anecdote. <laughs> N equals one, correlation, causation, all of it. It's good enough for me. You got it, me too. Um, where can people find out more about you, more about your work? Where can they say hi to you on the socials? Yeah, so I would say Facebook is probably the best place. I don't really like Facebook, but you can't argue the setup they have going there. So putting up my content, um, populating a page, is basically a website now. So if you just look up uh, Tommy Caldwell Fitness on Facebook, you can find me there. Uh, you can find the page for the gym, Hybrid Fitness Center on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and I post and stuff, but I don't really have a great handle on most social media. If you want to see mostly what my son eats, you can find that <laughs> on true. Instagram. That. Uh, that's usually the majority of the posts up there. Also studies that I read, uh, research that I read that I think is helpful for people to, to maybe dive into. I post that on Instagram, um, but most of my bigger content uh, I will moderate through the Facebook page. Okay. And is, is there any last thing that you want to pass on to our listeners or any ask that you have of them? No, I guess the one thing I would say is that if you're trying to change your health, you don't need more information. You need application of the things you already know. And the reason why you're having trouble applying those things is because you haven't connected with the things you are self-medicating, right? You have stress or anxiety or sadness or depression or anger or frustration or a combination of all these things that cause you regular discomfort, that you use food and laziness and lethargy and technological distraction in order to self-medicate. Get to the bottom of that. You'll change your life. Tommy, thanks so much for being here. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, hopefully we can have more conversations in the future. You got it. Anytime. And that's it for this episode of The Improvement Project. Tommy shared some amazing information and he has some pretty strong opinions, which I love. Let us know what you thought about the interview. Email us or send us a voice memo at theimprovementproject at drpeggymalone.com. You'll find all of the resources and links that we mentioned during today's show in the show notes at drpeggymalone.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes if you haven't already. It really helps other people to find the podcast so that we can help as many people as possible to create new habits. We would love to connect on the socials. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Peggy Malone and Jenny is on Twitter at Jake You can always get our attention on the socials by using the hashtag The Improvement Project. We also have a Facebook group. Search for The Improvement Project on Facebook to join in on the conversation. Now go get to work on improving the most important project that you have. That's you. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay focused and get after it. Anyhow. (laughs) Rant over. Yeah, hopefully.